Let's change. There it is. Now your screen went blank. Now you're off. Now it's starting. Okay. okay. Uh, your name is Yusuf? Uh, Yosef, yeah. Yosef. Okay. Well, I'm very happy to meet you. Glad yeah. to have you. Um, we had just gotten started on uh, the issue about the uh, right away talking about the importance of the teacher and also the importance of lineage or community. And so I would like to introduce the teaching of the Buddha that way because it's a very much community oriented thing. That even though uh, everyone gives a nod uh, of allegiance to the Buddha in the sense that he was the one who found the original path, still he was out looking in all the right places because he had been to the very best teachers in the neighborhood all over eastern India. And yep. so he was well founded and well educated and also in close contact with many. Yeah. And so the teaching of the Buddha is also a kind of a community teaching that, in fact, there is one place where Ananda says to a layman shortly after the Buddha's death that there is no distinction between the monks who are now left after the Buddha and the Buddha himself. There is no distinction at all except mm. for one point. And that is, is that the Buddha rediscovered an old path but that everyone can hear what that path is and also begin to follow it only when they're around other people who are on the path and following it. And so now I'm introducing to you the concept of guilt by association. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. That if you associate with alcoholics, then the likelihood is that you're going to become an alcoholic. If you live in a bar and stay at a bar and all the people around you are bar flies, you'll become a bar fly most likely. Yeah. Or if you're uh, raised in a religious cult, you're likely to be uh, a part of that cult. Mm -hmm. Or um, when uh, a, a guy gets married, he has a bachelor party sometimes, which is nothing really more than a goodbye to all of his friend sets, because now that he's married, he's going to have a different set of friends. He's going to have married friends. Yeah. OK, so when you see that that works that way, you can see why the army, when they recruit a new recruit, they take him completely out of his house, out of his home. Wouldn't mm -hmm. it be marvelous if you could do boot camp eight hours a day and go home and rest? <laughs> yeah. No, boot camp is all over it, <laughs> all the time. Mm -hmm. And so it's a change of lifestyle. Uh, and getting into a community really has an enormous benefit or an enormous disadvantage, depending upon the um, let us say the overall mindset of, of the people in that organization. Yeah, that that, make, that really makes a lot of sense. Do you, so, what what makes a community? Um, does does it have to be you know in physical space? Does doing call? Well, they have to have something in common. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, the masons have business in common. The rotaries have business in common. Uh, the uh, the Republicans have politics in common. Yeah. Okay. Churches have certain belief systems in common. So they have to have something in common. Yeah. The best thing to have in common is friendship. Yeah. That's something that's really valuable to have in common. And in fact, that's what is in common with the nobles. When you have noble friends, they are friends. <clears throat> and they behave nobly. And you, in order to want to fit in, would naturally start behaving nobly to be there. A, a, probably a good example is on a, a high school sport team, the kid who can't keep up on a run with his teammates 
will probably quit the team. Yeah. He can't keep up. Okay, so the same thing is true about associating with the wise. When you start associating with the wise, you start having that what we could call rub off. Yeah. <laughs> or another way of talking about it is a spark. Mm -hmm. Okay, so how does a fire get started? There's several uh, ways. You can sit around and wait for lightning to happen. Mm -hmm. Not yeah, likely. Yeah, you can, or you can right. or you can rub and rub and rub and rub. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Or you can borrow some fire from someplace else. Yeah. Just a spark will do. Yeah, I like that analogy. <laughs> okay. And what people do with the Dhamma on their own with book reading is a whole lot of rubbing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And really, there's another way, and that is just to gain it as a spark mm -hmm. or to let it rub off, to become friends with nobles who are friendly and treat you friendly so that you begin to feel like that you're okay and friendly and you start to become friendly with your own self. Mm -hmm. And that's all there is to it. Simple. In fact, it is it is so simple that it's mind boggling. And in fact, that's what happens is that people get all boggled up with how complicated Buddhism is, where in fact, it really is so simple. Mm -hmm. And you can see where the complexity comes from out of a book when you have five of this and six of those and eight of these and 12 of those and 16 of those things and three of those and four more of this and five of that. <clears throat> which I could probably name all the yeah. three kind of feelings and the four noble truths and the four foundations of mindfulness and the four factors of enlightenment or excuse me, um, that seven factors of enlightenment and the five aggregates and the, uh, uh, the six sense base yeah. and uh, 12 steps of Anapanasati and 16 stages of Anapanasati. It just keeps going on and on and on. And when the beginner comes in, they see that's really, really complicated. Yeah. <laughs> but the easier it is to understand in the beginning, the more that we start off in the sense of unwrapping it as an easily understood package to begin to see why there winds up being 16 steps of Anapanasati, because there's almost like, um, really, it's this way. You, you know enough about music to know that basically there are 12 notes. Yeah. And that's basically all there is to music. Mm -hmm. You add some timing and rhythm and change those notes. And what else is there to it? Music is really that simple. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it's it's yeah. So what you're saying but, is. Yeah, but mm -hmm. in order to make beautiful music, we need to practice those mm -hmm. simple 12 notes. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's the way that we have to understand that we need to practice this thing. And basically, a lot of it has to do with the fact that all of our lives we have been playing the same notes. We've just been playing them in a noisy way rather than in a harmonious way yeah or a friendly way and so all we need to do is to start understanding the nature of chords the nature of the way the mind works and all of a sudden our life becomes a beautiful melody <laughs> and it's not so much just a bunch of noise all the time yeah and go ahead you got a question um no, um, no, I, I, I that, that that makes sense uh, to me. So you said, um, yeah. So it, you're kind of a a reflection of the the company you keep. Um, that was something that was kind of standing out to me. And and so so then it seems like a, some of the work is is finding the right company. Or you know, you, you said nobles, and so then that mm -hmm. seems like. Uh, you know, something to, somewhere to focus your energy, <laughs> I guess, on on finding people. Yes, 
Exactly. That in fact, quite commonly, I hear people saying that all of the people that I associate with now have no clue about the Dhamma. Yeah. Uh, therefore, it's hard for me to stay friendly with them, that it would be nice if I had some friends who I could associate with who kind of are speaking the new language that I'm learning. Yeah. Okay. So that's actually another example of what we're talking about. If you want to learn a foreign language, immersion is the best way. Mm -hmm. Spanish is best learned in places like Mexico. If you want to learn the Thai language, it's better to come to Thailand than it is to go to uh, Bolivia. Yeah. You go to Bolivia, you'll probably learn some German more than you will Thai. Okay, so that's the way of looking at it is back to that original phrase, guilt by association. It's very, very powerful. And um, and what that means then is also that we're out on alert for friends. As opposed to the regular way that we're uh, living our lives is we're out on alert for dangers. Now we can be out on alert for friends or friendliness, which is basically what the Dhamma is all about. That I uh, often cite the, the sutta, the name of it is Half Sutta. Half Sutta, okay. H-A-L-F Sutta, S-U-T-T-A. You can Google that and it'll bring this dude right up. Okay. And the Half Sutta is when um, Ananda goes to the Buddha and says that all oh, Sariputta just had said that friendship is half the Dhamma. And the Buddha says, oh, no, friendship is not half the Dhamma. It's the whole show. Hmm. It's all of the Dhamma. And that we can look at it in halves in the sense that half of the Dhamma is learning how to be friends on, with everybody that we meet, everyone in our own physical world. Never mind the people who are not in our world. We're talking about the people who are in my world. I can treat with like friendship, with friendliness. But I can't do that unless I've already got a different kind of friendship going on, and that's being friends with myself on the inside. And that's what the real practice of Anapanasati is, is becoming friends on the inside so that we can deal with the rest of the world in a friendly way. Yeah. And hopefully, if we're wise, we associate with noble people who behave and, th and think the same way, because that makes the path all the easier. It's kind of hard to do the right thing when you're surrounded by people who are doing the wrong thing. But equally so, it's kind of hard to do the wrong thing when you're around people who are doing the right thing all the time. Yeah, it goes both ways. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> this is why we talk about it that way. And in fact, this whole point that we're making is instinctual. It's built into our genes. And what I mean by that is the herding instinct or the nesting instinct. These are two words for the same thing. But it means that we associate with others. Yeah. However, we can do that ignorantly rather than wisely. Yeah. One of the ways that we can ignorantly associate with others is by wanting them to fix our own problems. Mm -hmm. We have an entire service industry built up around that in the sense that you can find auto mechanics, you can find people who make your clothes, you can find people who will serve your food, you can find people who will do your accounting, you can find people who will do your lawyering for you, you can feel, find people who will fix your car, who will give you a shot, who will take care of many things for you, right? And so yeah. we get into the feeling of being dependent and then when we run across an item where nobody can help us fix that item, what are we going to do? And there is one that nobody can help you with, and that yeah. is the internal world. They can fix you all the things that I told about they can help you with. For instance, even a piano teacher can listen to your music and watch you play and help you. Yeah. But while you're sitting on the floor thinking, nobody can help you think. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. We do not know what's in the minds of other people. Yeah. And so that means that we have to come to a conclusion that we're going to have to do some things all on our own. And when we're especially living around people who already know that and are actively engaged in fixing their own problem, that also gives us that incentive rather than being around people who are looking for somebody else to fix their problems. They may, in fact, want you to fix their problem Mm -hmm. instead of you fixing your own problem. So when you're around people who are actually actively fixing their own mental states, that's a really one-upmanship in the sense of now you've really got some assistance. So -hmm. these are various ways to look at this whole thing, and I'll introduce it to you with a new word. Mm -hmm. That word is sangha. Mm-hmm. The noble Sangha. You have probably heard Buddhism referred to as the triple gem. Yeah. Buddham, Dhammam, Sangham. All right. In Western Buddhism, this whole point about Sangha is basically what's missing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's more and, intellectualized. <laughs> mm-hmm. And individ, rugged individualism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> Rugged individualism is the the name of the game. I've got to do it myself because I can't afford that teacher, and I can't afford that teacher because he charges so much because he's in it for himself. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really built into like culture in in the West. I think individualism. So that yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and so this is the kind of thing that you can see in the cultural makeup of Thailand that is different mm-hmm. than in the cultural makeup of the West. And that's why this cultural advantage that is built into the Thai culture to assist in the Sangha is not there in the Western Sangha because of that individual mentality that we have. Mm. So, so is and that one? Oh. Go ahead. Sorry, so so I'm just curious. Would you say that that is why you know like the the the, the dharma is more widespread in the east, just because of more of a collectivist collective value than individual, um, or not necessarily? Or you could say it's been there a long time. Okay. <laughs> and because it's been there a long time, some of the salient best features of it have rubbed off right out of the Sangha into society as a whole. Yeah, okay. Interesting. So, yes, there are many, many curious aspects about uh, the uh, West, the Thai culture that that looks suspiciously like they are tied to Buddhism. And so mm-hmm. you could begin to put the connections together to see how uh, things are like that. So. Uh, in the West, we could say that there are some kind of built-in disadvantages mm-hmm. that will have to be overcome, and the Sangha is is one of them, okay. because that's the only way that the real teachings of the Buddha is going to be spread, is among friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's face it, there's enough books already on the market, and there are millions of people reading millions of books. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and no, and none of them have very many friends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You you don't make fan, friends when you're reading uh, the book. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so with that as a base, we can now look at the Buddha and the Dhamma and the Sangha together as as a triple gem or as one kind of thing. That the Sangha was established originally by the Buddha as basically a place for friends to come and hang out hmm. and get away from it all. Yeah. And in a way, it's still like that in hmm. the East. Hmm. Just a place to come hang out. It's quiet here. Nobody doing anything. Yeah. And and just enjoying a life of, of peace and quiet. Out of the hub, urban, hurly-burly of the town and the city. 
and mm-hmm. that in Western society, everybody is caught up in the hurly-burly in the sense of believing a, a whole pack of lies that we've been told as children. Yeah. whole pack of lies that we've been told as kids. And we can see quite evident some of those lies in the way that society has broken up into various factions. Yeah. I'll start with the example of salt. Some societies, some communities oversalt their food, and in some cases, people will add salt to their food in a restaurant before they ever even taste it. They'll just start adding salt. Yeah. <laughs> but that's not as common now as it was 70 years ago mm-hmm. because they figured out that salt is dangerous, Yeah. that it leads to high blood pressure. And because of that, it's not talked up the way that it used to be. Now we can use gun ownership as another one. That people use guns, normally they own guns because it's okay for them to own guns, and normally that means that they were around guns when they were children. And so they grow up sometimes really clinging to the guns because they have the guns for protection because they feel afraid. And so without being armed, They feel fear. They don't want to feel the fear, so they use the gun to keep them from feeling afraid rather than dealing directly with the fear. Because if they were fearless, they wouldn't need a gun. Yeah. And yet in the house that has the gun, those houses are much more dangerous. It's much more likely for you to get shot in a house that's got a gun than to get shot in a house that doesn't have a gun. I mean, that's so in that regard, wisdom shows that guns are dangerous. And yet people collect them out of fear. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's do another one. How about Mm anti-vaxxers? It's the same thing. Mm -hmm. They are making it dangerous for themselves, but they are afraid of the vaccine because they have been lied to. Mm -hmm. There's a whole lot of lying going on in public politics, always has been. In the 1930s, they called it propaganda. Now they call it news. (laughs) but a whole lot of lying is going on and people believe those lies they take up those fears another one would be immigration Hmm. or racism in general because you see racism comes out of the instinct that is next door or kindred to the the nesting or the herding instinct and that's the territorial instinct Everybody in my um, uh, nest is okay, but if you're an outsider, if you're different, then you're dangerous. Fear of the unknown. That's what causes racism, tribalism, and all kinds of things. But wisdom would show that this guy's not dangerous just because he's dressed different, speaks different, or has different skin tone. Yeah. That doesn't make him dangerous. But it takes some wisdom to do it that way, normally following the instinct of territory. And there he is. I don't know him. Therefore, he's dangerous. Hmm. Um, And the politicians really, really work on that. Sorry, I'm losing the video. Are you still able to see me? I can still see you. Okay. Well, I can still hear you. So I just. Okay. Did the video freeze? Yeah. Because everything is good here. Oh, there it's back now. <clears throat> okay. Okay. Yeah. So, 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 so there's kind of basic instincts that, like you were saying, the territorial, and then the kind of the social nesting. Um, they're kind of they're kind of opposites of each other in a way. In a way, yes. One's near and one's far. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In my herd or out of my herd. In my herd, they have to do what they're told to do. Out of my herd, they're an enemy. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? I mean, there's that. where's the benefit in all of that? Yeah. The only benefit is survival itself, which is the most basic instinct of all. Yeah. And to round out the big four, the other instinct would be our uh, ability to take possession of things. Mm -hmm. to grab and to hold and to keep, whether that's a weapon or a knife or a wife or anything. Mm -hmm. But it's our ability to grab things and keep them in hand. 
or to, uh, in fact, manufacture a pocket to keep it in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Okay, so this is the, and that's an instinct, and we do that, why? For protection. I feel unsafe without my cell phone. Yeah. But the original point was I feel unsafe. Basically, let's say it this way, that there's the first human being or or one of the early dudes, and he picks up a rock and he bashes this uh, newly found bone and gets the marrow out of it. Yeah. He's got a nice dinner. And then he looks at the rock and says, "Hmm, I think I'll keep this. And that's the beginning of that instinct gone crazy. (laughs) Okay. And we did it with fire. Mm-hmm. And that made us into human beings. There's a kind of evidence to show that the the guys who built who uh, let us say learned to control fire in the most primitive of ways, so that they could at least cook food with it. Mm-hmm. Because of the the food cooking, that allowed the ape that did this for his ancestry to drop the size of the jawbone. Because we didn't need such heavy jaws. And not only that, but to get a whole lot of digestion out of the cooked food Mm -hmm. so that we could put it to use. And that's what gave us the huge frontal cortex. Yeah. Yeah, fire. (laughs) No, it's not the fire. It's the fact that the guy owned the fire. He instinctually grabbed the fire and put it to use. That's why I'm I'm pointing that out to show you how deeply buried into your psyche this grabbing is. Mm-hmm. Goes so, even so possessing being fire. human. Huh? So possessing the fire. Not the possessing mm-hmm. dot dot dot. Whatever. But it's the mm-hmm. grasping and holding and clinging that yeah. gives rise to anything that we see we like. Yeah. Anything we see and like we want to own it. Which means that by not uh, having it and wanting it, we're somehow um, feeling unwhole. That if I had that thing, that club, that stick, that hank of hair, that piece of bone, that woman, whatever it is that I'm wanting, I'll Mm -hmm. feel better if I get it. Yeah. And so I go about trying to get it rather than learning to live happily without it. That, in fact, the warning is just a thought. Yeah. And so I don't have to want things. But when I want things, the reason for it is, is instinct. And we instinctually want things. We instinctually herd together and make up rules of the nest. And we instinctively are afraid of things that we don't know. And there's the four instincts. The top one being afraid of... Uh, not surviving. Yeah. The self-preservation instinct, fear of death. And look at all the magical kinds of stuff that we think about and invent in order to uh, absolve ourselves of the fear of death. Oh, I won't die. It'll just be the body that dies. I'll continue on. I'll get a new body. God's good to me. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the delusions that people will have. Mm-hmm. Um, is that I can get a new one, but I will be okay. Yeah. But the better way of doing it is to recognize, no, we don't know really what's going to happen after death. Why don't we be ready for it? Death itself, I mean, so that we can handle death really well. If I can really be happy to die, then I can be happy to live before I die. Mm-hmm. Why should I go around being afraid of death and trying to make up lies and stories to keep me absolved of, of the fears? Because that's not going to really get rid of the fears. It's just going to misplace them yeah. into the sense of if the fear of death is uh, misplaced, I'm still afraid of the unknown. I'm still afraid of strangers. I'm still afraid of people with the wrong color or the wrong accent or the wrong clothes or the wrong ideas. Because they're dangerous instinctively they're dangerous and then you add the lies and the propaganda of our society and the various people who are trying to take advantage of it and we have a full-blown psychosis on hands the psychosis of gun ownership the psychosis of uh, uh, vaccine um, uh, anti-vaccines 
uh, smoking, alcoholism, all of those kinds of addictions. But there are other kinds of addictions. For instance, if a child is raised in a household that has a lot of violence, yeah. the likelihood of him being violent when he grows up is very high. Okay. So the first thing that we have to recognize is that our childhood was probably pretty rough. You have heard very many stories, especially stories that have to do with success stories, about how bad off that guy was when he was a kid. Mm -hmm. He had a terrible upbringing. Yeah. But in spite of his really terrible upbringing, look what he was able to do. He was able to rip a bunch of people off and get a bunch of money or became famous or he got green hair or anything like that. But he got it after having a really ridiculously bad childhood. Yeah. But every one of us will try to compete with him and say, oh, no, my childhood was just as bad. And I talk about that whenever when somebody comes to be on the Internet and talks about how bad their childhood was. Mm. I mentioned this, that we all think we had a really rough childhood. Mm. Why is that? Are we all that delusional or did we all really have a pretty rough childhood? (laughs) (laughs) I think it was the second. I think that we all are put through a whole lot of misery as children that is unnecessary. Yeah. Yeah, and that, much that, of that that, that really resonates resonates with me as a, as a you know, as a parent and just you know thinking about you know my childhood and how that affects my children's childhood and my partner her childhood how mm-hmm. that affects our children's childhood and it's and and so on and so on so <laughs> so how do exactly. how do we, how do you think about that from um, kind of a the the perspective of the Dharma and yeah. <laughs> Okay, the first thing is to recognize that this is generational. Yeah. That this is society passing down bad data from person to child over and over again, generation after generation. And that this stuff fits in precisely with the instincts that were quite useful 500,000, 600,000 years ago. But in yeah. today's modern society, there's nothing to be afraid of. Yeah. And yet we see our parents full of fear their whole lives while we grow up and we grow up and we become afraid. And yeah. we pass that fear on to our children and the fear is needless because there's nothing really to be afraid of. And yet we go around playing games about what if this and what if that could go wrong. And yeah. then we feel bad about the things that we invent that could go wrong. Yeah. All right, so we play this what if game. What if this happens or what if that happens? And one of them is if you don't work, you don't eat. So what if I lose my job? I'll starve. And yet nobody who's lost their job ever starves. Hmm. But we think of it in the sense of, oh, poor me, if I lose my job, what will become of me? We make it a survival instinct rather than, wow, I'm so glad I don't have to go to the office today or Hmm. tomorrow. (laughs) <laughs> yeah that's so we, that's going to be a very deep a deep one to that's that's like that's what moves most people in, the, in the, at least in western society but yeah <laughs> yes yeah, so now we begin to see that this stuff does in fact look like it, it goes deep but in fact no it just comes up as a thought mm-hmm And all we have to do is deal with the thought in this moment. Okay. To say, I will eat even if I don't work today. I'll be okay today even if I don't work. Right? So we begin to unwind the lies that we've been told to see the things the way that they really are and to recognize there's nothing to be afraid of. Why do we go around in a state of anxiety and fear when we could go around happily? The answer is, is because we talk ourselves into anxiety and fear by playing the what if game. Yeah. What if this goes wrong? What if that goes wrong? And then we live that. Here's several examples that I've got lined up. Okay. Near and far away. The first one is near. 
the young man has taken the Buddha's word for it and goes to the forest to the foot of a tree. He goes out into uh, the um, the woods of uh, the northwest in Washington state. And while he's out there camping with a friend, he hears a noise in the night. Some bump goes in the night. He immediately has this, the thought, what if it's a bear? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now he feels really afraid. Mm-hmm. There's no bears up there. But what if it's a bear? That's just a what if. Okay. Yeah. The next one is, is that uh, the young student calls in tears because 17 miles away at a school, there was a shooting. And six people got shot by a shotgun. This happened in Russia within the past month or so. She calls, that's my school. The answer is, no, that is not your school. Mm -hmm. That you were not there. That, yes, there was a shooting, but it only affected the people who were there. And you were not there. Why do you have what ifs? What if you were there? What if you were there, then then you could deal with there. And probably... Being afraid is not one of the things to do when you're there. When you're there, you want to duck and run and something. Yeah. Sitting there freaked out is not what you want to do. Yeah. But 17 miles away, she'll do that. Okay, the third one is, this happened in, uh, in September of 2001. I was staying in a monastery in Chicago, and there was a meditation retreat. Uh, class that night being uh, conducted every week by the uh, abbot uh, Virasag Maradamo and uh, in this particular evening the evening of Uh 9-11 that morning had been the attack and everyone in this meditation room is freaked out about the attack and Virasag Viradamo has tried to calm them down. Guys, it's okay. You know, why are you having this fantasy trip and that kind of stuff? And that's when I walked into the room. Mm-hmm. And I took it from that position. Uh, look, you guys are in Chicago, and that's in New York. It's 600 miles from here. Why are you freaking out about something that you're not there? If you were in that tower, you would be doing something about the tower when it went down. Here you are sitting in your chair freaking out when you don't know what to do because you're imagining it all. You're playing the game of what if. Yeah. And we play that game of what if a lot. In this case, 800 miles away. Now, I imagine something. I imagine that neither those people nor anyone else in Chicago is playing what if right now about 9-11 because that was 20 years ago. Yeah. And nobody's playing a what if now about it. They played what if about it because it was hot in the press. It was news. So that's how we do the news. That's why when they talk about it in uh, the journalists, they talk about it in a sense, if it bleeds, it leads. Uh-huh. Why is that? Because the people who are reading that bleed. Yeah. They play the what if game. What if this happened to me? Um, so can I just uh, ask, so this what if game that we're we're talking about, is it, so I know that there's like an instinctual aspect, but how much of it is, is, is learned and, and, you know, as a child, you know, in your environment from your parents, how, you know, like how much of it is instinctual, how much of it is learned, would you say? Let's talk about it in the sense of um, structure and function. Okay. And perhaps we can do that in the sense of looking at it as a gun versus the ammunition. Mm-hmm. So we were built, we were born with the gun. That's the instinct. Yeah. But what is loaded into that gun yeah. is a bunch of dangerous stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so we need to start looking at these thoughts that we keep loading into the mind. Yeah. That's the point, is that what kind of thoughts do we have right now? This is actually the, an excellent question that can be turned around. Well, how do we practice now this Dhamma? Mm-hmm. That we're beginning to understand, basically, that we've been talking about this whole time of the second noble truth, of what is the cause of suffering? 
The cause of suffering is twofold. One, it's the gun of the instincts, and number two, the ammunition that we use to fire off those instincts rather than wisely stop loading the gun. Yeah. And we take over the instincts. And we do that one thought at a time or one bullet at a time. What am I thinking right now? Okay, so this is what uh, this is the beginning of the practice. So basically, we're talking about the four noble truths here and have been for quite a while. Uh, uh, the nature of the four noble truths is dukkha, and the word dukkha doesn't translate very well as suffering. It can be, but uh-huh. basically, what we're looking at is dissatisfaction. Yeah. Okay. And so when we hear about the uh, the 9-11 tower crash, we think about it and we feel bad, mm-hmm. which would mean that that would be an unwholesome thought. But we think about it because we have that self-preservation instinct going on of, oh, that's a bad thing to happen. That would kill me. Therefore, it is bad. And so now we're having bad, unwholesome thoughts. And that, uh, that is associated with the feelings of fear. When we wake up to, to realize that, well, we don't have to have those kind of thoughts. That we, in fact, can choose the kind of thoughts that we want to have. And the kind of thoughts that we want to have would then be putting us into the third noble truth of a place of satisfaction. What we're going to do then practice is practice removing the thoughts that cause unsatisfaction and replace them with thoughts that create satisfaction. And we do that one thought at a time in this thought moment, this thought, and then this next thought, and then this next thought after that. Mm -hmm. And that people in the West, they get an idea that, oh, this is a long, slow process. And it takes years. That's because it's got a goal that takes years. We need to change the frame of reference and to know all I have to do is to take care of this thought right now. Let the future take care of itself. This thought. Yeah, save tomorrow for for tomorrow. Would you would you agree with that that old? Um, that's... Absolutely. Let tomorrow <laughs> take care of tomorrow. Okay, uh, uh, take no thought of the future is a little bit absurd. We would want to do it in the sense of a balance, only in the sense of looking forward just enough. But then where we return is back to the here now. We don't just stay off into the past and future and the past future, that we begin to stay more and more of our time in the present moment. So, So that takes some discernment, like what is just enough? I think. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. Well, here we're going to introduce the Eightfold Noble Path, mm-hmm. which is really not a path, it's a method. Mm-hmm. Because it's been translated into the word path, guess what? We all think that it takes a long time to go down that path. Yeah. A journey metaphor and journeys. A journey metaphor, exactly. Here's another way of thinking about it is, is that it's actually a door that needs to be unlocked. And here you have that door right in front of you. And all you need to do is follow these simple directions. And that is stick the key in, turn the key, turn the knob and push the door and it comes open. Yeah. That's all there is to it. If the door is right here in front of us. So that's the mentality that we have to take is, oh, what needs to be done is right here in front of me. And all I have to do is this. And that's all there is to it. That's why it becomes simple. Mm -hmm. And so let's look at the Eightfold Noble Path, because the Eightfold Noble Path is exactly what we're talking about here. And that is there are four items on it. And the first one is right view. What we mean by right view is not a viewpoint like a worldview or an understanding or a mental construction or a concept. Rather, we're talking about a verb, not a noun, but a verb like viewing, looking, investigating, 
seeing. seeing okay. That's what we mean by right view. Right view is really looking. Mm -hmm. The next one is when are we going to look? The answer to that is when we remember to look. We look when we remember to look. When yeah. do we remember? We're going to use that as a skill to be developed so that we remember to look more often, more thoroughly, and uh, be on guard to see things very quickly. And we'll talk about this in detail later. Yeah. So this is what we mean by sati, and in Western Buddhism has been referred to as mindfulness. But I want to put this extra emphasis upon it in the sense that it is waking up to being in the present moment. So rather than lost in the thoughts about the past, we wake up and see I am lost right now in the past. Yeah. And therefore I can come out of the past into the present moment immediately. Yeah. Okay. This is what we mean by waking up. Mindfulness more has the quality of looking what at what you're doing mm -hmm. more so and stop thinking about other things. Here we're actually focusing on what are you thinking and how can you change it? Okay. Okay. And so what we're looking at is discernment with this investigation. We're going to investigate. Is this thought worth having in the mind right now or not? Is this thought worth wholesome? Is it, I mean, is this thought worth having? Is it wholesome? Is it to my advantage? Does it make me feel good? Or is it unwholesome? Not to my advantage. Makes me feel bad. Wants me to feel uh, fearful or guilty or uh, sad. And if I'm having sad thoughts, that means that I'll feel sad. So it's better to not have sad thoughts. Let's have happy thoughts instead. That's what the teaching of the Buddha is all about. And I think the people in the West are missing this because in the Mahasi method, they talk about noting. Mm -hmm. And they say, well, what to note? And the answer to that is you note whatever is there. That's not exactly the teaching of the Buddha. The Buddha would say, yes, you do know what's there, but only very short time later, you've already decided whether that's worth doing or not and throw it out. If it's not mm -hmm. now, not every thought is going to be unwholesome. Many thoughts we have is wholesome. Sometimes you'll wake up and say, "Hey, this is a nice thought I'm already having," <laughs> and so we can congratulate ourselves for it. Mm -hmm. Or we can wake up and say, "Oh, this is a bunch of garbage. Let's not think about Aunt Susie. Let's think about this present moment instead." Yeah. Okay, so this is the way that we practice. This is Eightfold and Noble Path now because the, the next item on the list is right effort. The right effort is, is to actually throw unwholesome thoughts out of the mind. We have to take just the right amount of effort and the right amount. Of, actually, this is so easy to do. I mean, thoughts come and go, right? And then some of them come back and others go and they come and they go and they come and go. Thinking is kind of an easy thing to do. You've gotten kind of used to it, right? So now yeah. all we're going to do is we're going to put a kind of a guard at that gate and say, no, you don't come in. Yeah, you can come in. No, you can't come in. Yeah, you can come in. Until pretty soon you're in just a stream of only wholesome thoughts. So you said right effort. I guess I've seen the order of right intention. Does the order matter? Actually, they do, and that I'm about to get to the to the uh, to the correct order. Okay. So let's go with that for just a moment, and then okay. we'll go yeah. and 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 circle around. And in fact, okay. this is what we're talking about in the sense of circling around, right view, right sati, and right effort run and circle around each other, developing as skills. Okay. Right view develops as a skill of understanding what used to think that it was just completely wholesome. Now we can see the dangers in it. And so now we make a new choice about it, that this is unwholesome and there because it's dangerous. And so now I take the effort to throw that thought out too. Okay. Sati increases in speed because, uh, and um, um, action because we're actually practicing sati as a developing skill, and we do that with the breathing. Sati mm -hmm. on the in-breath to remember to take a long breath in, 
and sati on the out breath to remember to remember to take a long breath out. Okay. And so we're watching the breathing, and by doing so, we're actually controlling the mind because we're controlling the mind to think about the breathing, and we're controlling the breathing with sati to make it long. So we're doing a whole lot of stuff right, even though we might do a whole lot of other stuff also. Yeah. Those things are what we start with, is watching the breath and making sure that it's long. By doing so, we're training the mind. And while we're actually thinking about it being a long breath and watching the body, that's a mind moment. But then the mind will wander away. We want to make sure that it doesn't wander too far and mm-hmm. comes back. And if the mind does wander away, then the answer to that is, never mind, just start again. Yeah. But we do want to start uh, in intentionally having language that is beneficial and is part of the meditation. You okay. can even go so far as to talk about it in, in the sense of a mantra, but it doesn't have to be um, um, the, the, the short things that come from Asia because that doesn't really mean anything to Westerners. It's better to use language that really means something to us. So the kind of mantras that we would have is, wow, everything is so good right now. Wow, what a nice breath this is. Mm -hmm. Wow, no place to go and nothing to do. And the spring comes and the grass grows by itself. And boy, isn't it nice just to sit here and do nothing for a while. Just to relax. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We begin to get the attitude then that I can do this. I can relax. We get the attitude that I have already done the job that needed to be done by merely taking the unwholesome thought out of the mind that kept me upset and active and busy and doing stuff and having wholesome thoughts in the mind which are relaxing and freeing. And so the only job there is to do is just have a wholesome thought. And now we don't have any more jobs to do. Mm. Oh, that is so amazing. <laughs> Just, okay, we can get in ourselves into a state, nothing to do. There's no place to go and nothing to do. Isn't it nice to be in this state? When we're uh, practicing this, we're developing the fourth item on the list, and that is Sama Sankapa that you mentioned as right intention. Mm-hmm. Okay, right intention is okay, but right attitude is a little bit easier to understand. Yeah, okay. Okay, in the sense that the loser has the attitude of this is hard to do. Oh, my mind's a monkey mind, this is hard to do. Yeah. I got to work at it. Yeah. And the, uh, de- the developed right thought or the right at, uh, attitude is going to be this is a piece of cake. I could do this. This is easy. All I have to do is sit here and breathe. And if I forget to do that and, when, and then remember, never mind, start again. Never mind that I forgot a while. I did remember this time. Let's start again happily. Yeah. And so we continue to start over again happily. It's okay that the mind wandered away from the breath. Let's start again. And, and practice now rather than remorsing over when we weren't practicing correctly. That in fact, what we went back to was what we've been doing our whole lives anyway. So if you go around doing things in your whole life and you're not aware of it and you just stumble along living out a destiny or a predestined life, that's a certain bliss in the sense of ignorance. Mm-hmm. Now that you're waking up and beginning to see all of that garbage, do not despair because you've been doing that stuff your whole life already anyway. Mm-hmm. Be joyful now that you can see it. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. So so the, the different, yeah, that, that makes sense, right attitude. Um, and that's, it's just making me think about how sometimes in culture you'll hear people talk about children with bad attitudes um mm-hmm. and uh, so i'm just but that doesn't seem quite right it's like not um looking at it in the same way but it just made me think of that and and so i i'm just mentioning but something. look at the similarities rather than the differences when a child has a bad attitude what does that mean that he's angry that he's upset that he's trying to change the system he's defiant uh he wants to run away he doesn't want to do the work 
Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so when we have a bad attitude about our job, don't we do all of that kind of stuff, but try to hide it so that nobody sees that bad attitude? Yeah. Okay. Now let's look at a good attitude in the sense of hot dog. I could do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let me edit. I can play this game. This looks like a lot of fun with that attitude. That would be considered a good attitude. And I would assume that most uh, teachers would prefer kids that had that kind of attitude. I can do, I can do this. Yeah. <laughs> Rather than why do you make me do this? Mm -hmm. That's the attitude of a loser. The attitude of a winner is hot dog. We could do this. Yeah. And so surprise, surprise, this is an item on the Eightfold Noble Path of the Buddha. And when we practice these four things, right view, right sati, right uh, effort, and right attitude, we bring the mind together in a kind of unified fashion. The mind is unified, not a crowd. An example of a crowded mind would be when we lie, when we have doubts, when we're gossiping, when we're wanting things we don't have. But when the mind is unified, we feel comfortable and happy. We don't want anything. And because we don't want anything, we're unlikely to go harm people to get it. We're unlikely yeah. to steal. We're unlikely to lie to people. We're unlikely to do any of the things that would be considered a no-no in our society, but that we do any and all of those things when we've got a bad attitude. But when we've got a right attitude, we're good to go. We don't harm people. We don't want we don't need to compete with them because in my mind I've already won. Why should I have to bother to compete with him to prove something that I know is already true? Yeah. Yeah, I'm means... already the winner. Why should I have to compete with him to prove mm -hmm. it when I know already I am the king here? Here's an example of that that this is I love a lot, and that is the student says everyone, every one of us is an emperor. In our lives, every one of us is an emperor of our own pile of dirt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the question is, are you going to be half buried under your pile of dirt? Are you going to be completely buried under your pile of dirt? Are you going to be struggling, trying to survive under your pile of dirt? Or are you going to be sitting on top of your world, sitting on top of your pile of dirt? <laughs> yeah. Well, this is all attitude, isn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I have to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, not just think about it. Feel it. Feel yeah. like you're an emperor on top of the world. Feel like you can do this. Mm -hmm. Gain that attitude. Not just think about having that attitude. Practice it. Yeah. Practice feeling like I can handle this. I can. And how do we practice that? because we can practice and become successful at removing unwholesome thoughts out of the mind. I don't have to think about going to work right now because I'm not going to work right now. And if I were going to work right now, why am I not thinking about going to work? Instead, I'm thinking about being at work when yeah. I'm merely just going to work. Why don't instead be here now and go be in the process of going to work and do that. And when I get to work, then I can do the work. Yeah. But why am I worried about the work and I'm not even going to work? That's an unwholesome thought. It's mm -hmm. someplace else, some other time. Yeah. I'll work tomorrow someplace else. But right here, right now, I'm having a ball. Yeah. That's the only job to do right now is to have a ball. Enjoy your moment. Yeah, it, it's it's so simple and, and so <laughs> it really is, isn't it? Uh-huh. Yeah, but <laughs> <laughs> yes. So yeah, but it's the, the kind of the, the, the I like the analogy that you had mentioned earlier. Instead of the path, the door. And so rather than think of you know like it, you know, you, you I can think of how how much work and how hard it will be, but I can instead focus on this moment and opening the door this moment. And if I can, then that's that's my victory. And so we move from one success mm -hmm. to the next success. All we have to do is remember. And when we remember, we can be successful. And yeah. so we begin to plant successes in our lives. 
And the more successes you have, the more confidence that you have that you can have more successes. And that's when the confidence grows. Yeah. The Pali word for that is shraddha or sada. Sada? Shraddha. Right. Shraddha with an R if it's in Sanskrit and Shraddha with a, without the R in the uh, Pali. That, that or means maybe we really don't know what the R was doing. We just do the best <laughs> we can with it. <laughs> so that's success? Uh, it's confidence. Confidence, okay. All right. Okay, it is often translated as faith. Mm -hmm. but, but the kind of worry that faith is used in the West has to do with faith without any evidence. Without the right view or seeing, or is that, is that correct? Or? Without being able to see anything. Yeah, okay. Okay, yeah. That, we, that we take someone's word for it without any evidence. Mm -hmm. The Buddhist teaching is built solidly on evidence. Okay, the solid evidence is every time that you can see that unwholesome thought and you throw it out and feel better, that's evidence right there that you can do this. Yeah. Okay, also being in association with nobles and to see that other people can do this. Mm -hmm. Other people can be happy. Mm -hmm. They can be joyful. Yeah. They don't have to have the weight of their own world on top of them. Mm -hmm. They're on top of their world. Yeah. This is, by the way, what the word super mundane or in the Pali, uh, lokatara, means. Sitting on top of your world. Mm. Not a care in the world. Not a worry. Everything is all right. Everything is fine. We have what is called a sense of well-being. What, what what was the word for that in the super mundane? In the other, was it Pali you said? Loka, Lokatara. Lokatara. Above the world. Okay. is often translated as transcendent, but that's way too Christian-y for me. <laughs> yeah. Interesting, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But just being on top of the world, that's, that's doable. Mm-hmm. And it is nice. And you can do it. And you yeah. practice doing it. And then every time that you're on top of the world, you can congratulate yourself. Here I am again. I'm on top of that stuff. Let yeah. me see how long I can stay out of it. And every time you start to sink back in, you say, wait a minute, I'm not going there. Let me stay out of that crap. Mm -hmm. I don't have to play the what if game. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Um, that's, so, yeah, that's 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 useful. So um, I I also I want I want to check you in your time also. <laughs> um, are we? Well, we're about to finish up. Yeah, okay. we do things around an hour or so. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, that's I I, I really like that um, that way of, of thinking about it. And sup the super mundane is is, is that. Um, You'd mentioned before being an emperor of your pile of, of dirt. Is that, would you say that's mm -hmm. the same thing? <laughs> being on top yes. of? Being on top of your own pile of dirt. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's a really excellent metaphor for the, for the students to practice. That yeah. you don't have to go down and dig in your own pile of dirt. You can stay out of it. Yeah. Stay out of the past. You can think of the past or your pile of dirt or your pile of shit or everything you own. Yeah. In the seven days, they had that phrase of getting your shit together. Yeah. Right? Okay. Well, now that you've got it all in the pile, all we have to do is sit on it. <laughs> yeah. So, but, but by doing that, we're on top of the world. Mm -hmm. And then we... By getting it together, we begin to recognize what a pile of mess that is. But we don't have to keep playing with it. We don't have to keep wiping it off of our shoes or off of our bodies because we're walking around in it. That we can pile it off in the corner and then crawl on top of that pile. And we do that one little piece of dirt at a time. One thought moment. Yeah. Just this thought moment. Let's be on top of this thought. Mm -hmm. yeah. Let's be on top of this one. And by doing that over and over again, you develop the feeling, I can do this. Mm -hmm. I can handle this. Yeah. The shraddha. Or... Shraddha, <laughs> confidence. Exactly. Yeah. All right. 
So let's change topics just slightly here in the sense of how to practice this, because this kind of practice that we're talking about doesn't require formal sitting. Mm -hmm. But formal sitting is very, very handy. Yeah. And that mostly what we do in a formal sitting is going to be making sure that we're developing the skills, most primarily the skill of sati and the skill of right view, the mm-hmm. skill of right effort, and the skill of uh, right attitude. So we want to intentionally develop these skills. Mm-hmm. With the thought of, as I breathe in, I really can breathe in, and I can really allow myself to feel really good. Am I not a championship at breathing right now? And as I breathe out, wow, what a really nice breath out. I really got a big handle on the, all of these breathing kinds of things. I am the champion of this breath. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. And so we begin to feel really good, really powerful that we can control the mind. Mm-hmm. And allow ourselves the kind of language that puts us into a really, really good state. And we'll mm-hmm. talk about those kind of things as we introduce more technical details about Anapanasati. But for right now, the thing to do is to remember to put it on your on your to-do list, to remember to look at what kind of thought you're having right now, to remember to look. Yeah. Make it a, make it a goal. And when you do, also to remember to take a deep breath and to tell yourself, wow, what a nice deep breath this is. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and begin to practice that throughout the day, any and every time that you can remember. Yeah. Remember and to look at the thoughts. Remember to look to at check the it out and then put wholesome thoughts in. Yeah. And the, and what not to do is to uh, look at the thought, recognize it's unwholesome and then have more unwholesome thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> OK, but to change them, to change those thoughts into wholesome thoughts, practice that over and over and over again, and it will really change your whole way of living. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then tomorrow or the next day when you call, we can talk about um, uh, how to develop the sati as a skill in formal practice. Okay. But right now, the introduction is this is what we're going to do, whether we're doing it formally or informally. The only thing there is to do is to wake up, look yeah. at that thought, yeah. and to change it into a wholesome thought. Take a deep breath and be happy right now. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, well, thank you so much. Um, that that was. Yeah. I'll, so I'll 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 call again. Definitely. Um, is would you recommend um, a certain amount of time to just practice that? Just trying to remember or. Oh, I would say once a week. Yeah. You can get into a weekly routine and call yeah. on a particular evening or a particular day. Uh, wake up early and call uh, once a week. Something like that. That would be great. Okay. Yeah. I'll do that. Thank you. Okay. Well, we'll see you later. All right. You have a good evening. (laughs) You too. You have a good moment. A really nice one right now on me. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Bye. (laughs) All right. Bye for now.